All right. We did it. We're in Genesis 50, the last chapter. So if you've been here the entirety of this time over the past three years, uh, congratulations. So just to give you a heads up, so uh, we'll have a guest uh, preacher next week, Zach Albanese, a friend of mine. Um, And then we will begin a four-week series, topical series. I know. Calm down, everybody. Um, On the church. So we'll do that through the month of July. And then we are moving to uh, Augusta Prep, uh, August the 6th, Sunday, August the 6th. That'll be our first Sunday there. Um, And we will begin a a new, longer series in 1 Corinthians. So just keeping that in mind, if you want to jump ahead and read and Prepare yourself for that. You can you can do that. So just to give you a, give you a, a little bit of direction of where we're going. But this morning we're going to finish up the book of Genesis, and I'm going to read a few verses for us from Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. <clears throat> when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him." So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would um, open our, our minds to understand and open our hearts to receive what it is that you have to show us from your holy word this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so this, um, this past Thursday, Tara and I Celebrated 21 years of marriage. Yep, you can clap. Yeah, that's awesome. Clap, you're clapping mainly for Tara because she has endured 21 years with me. But, but one of the things that we, we did last Thursday was we drove to Columbia, uh, South Carolina, uh, for, the, for the day to, to visit some of, of the places uh, that we would go to when we, were, when we first started dating and then eventually got engaged and eventually married, and we lived in Columbia for a little while. And it was good to go, go back to, to look over what, what God did and continues to do in our lives personally, but also in our marriage. And some of it, we could say, it was filled with joy. Some of it has been filled with sorrow, but all of it has been God's sovereign purposes for us. And we were able to do this by standing back and looking over the landscape of of what God has accomplished in us and through us these past 21 years. But it also causes us to ask the question of what do we want the next 21 years to look like? 
So we're at the same time, we're looking back and we're looking forward. And this is an easy thing to forget to do in our world. We are so bogged down with the present, aren't we? With the here and now, the seemingly urgent things that our lives tend to thrust upon us. And so we forget to look back at God's goodness. We forget even to look forward to what God will do in the future. And so we should pause at times and do this. And this morning, in the final chapter of Genesis, we see a similar practice taking place. In chapter 50, we see Jacob and Joseph both die. And in the midst of their dying, they help us to look back and to look forward to God's promises. So we're able to stand back and look over the landscape of Genesis, but also in the New Testament and into the early church and even up into our day, and we see God's sovereign purposes over the entirety of God's people. And we see it in our text in three particular ways. One is through the reminder of God's promises. Two is through the reminder of God's sovereignty. And then the third way we see it is the reminder of God's future grace. So the reminder of God's promises, God's sovereignty, and God's future grace. So first, the reminder of God's promises. So as we've seen over the past 10 chapters or so, Jacob's relationship with God, to say the least, was a bumpy road. It was rough. And still, here at the end of his life, he he dies having 147 years of struggle and sorrow resolved in his life. God has forgiven him. God has made him new. And because of this, even in his dying, he can still hope in what God has done, not looking back with regret, and hope in what God will do once he's gone. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on Jacob's life, said, he had been secure in the midst of a thousand ills. That was Jacob's life. And as I talked about last week a little bit, Jacob is truly an example of how we ought to die as Christians when the time comes. And again, what we see is Jacob in his last moments uh, looking not to his own works, not pointing and saying, look how good I am or look where I started to look to God, but he points to God's work in his life. God receives 100% of the credit. And one of the places we see this is in chapter 49, verse 29, when Jacob says, I am about to be gathered to my people. I'm about to be gathered to my people. And what he means is that he is setting his eyes on the next world. That that heavenly city, he was longing for it at this point in his life. C.S. Lewis comments on this sort of longing for heaven and the problem of pain, his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, We are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to see God. 
And Jacob wanted to see God. Because he had faith in a God who kept his promises all his days. And so his burial shows us this. Firstly, when he asked to be buried, not in Egypt, but in the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land of his fathers. Now, this simple gesture is more than preference, but a reminder once again to those who will survive him. So he's not just saying, hey, that's the grave plot that I picked out. I would like for you to bury me there. It's a nice piece of land. It overlooks a lake or whatever. It's not it at all. Jacob, again, is reminding them of the promise in his burial that God will give them this particular land, that he will be faithful to his promise to his people. He will not relent until it is done and fulfilled. The second way Jacob's dying is a reminder of God's promises is in a minor detail in chapter 49, verse 31, uh, of who he is being buried with. Look there with me. So Jacob says these words. After he says, this is where I want you to bury me. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. So overall, all of this is an affirmation of Jacob's faith in God. He understands the promises given to Abraham and Isaac and now him. But not only that, he is is buried in the same place his unloved wife Leah is buried and not in the same place where his favorite wife Rachel is buried which is a completely change of character for this man. And and this might seem like an insignificant detail to you, but I think it tells us a lot about Jacob's faith, not only in the promise of the land, but what the land signifies, which is the promise of a Messiah. Because Leah, his least favorite wife, was the one who gave birth to Judah from whom the Messiah will come. And we know Jacob knows this because he just finished blessing him in this particular way in chapter 48, uh, and it it was a way in which he was pointing to the future forever king, King Jesus. So being buried with Leah was his affirmation of this reality. So how does a Christian die well? by leaning into God's right and true promise that the king is coming. So that's the first reminder of God's sovereign purposes. The second reminder we see here in our text is found in chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, the the text that I read for us earlier, and that is the reminder of God's sovereign purposes specifically. This reminder comes after Jacob's death, after Jacob's funeral. Um, so, but I first want us to look at, at, at verses 15 through 18 again to set the scene for this particular reminder because it's very important for us to hear this and see this. So look at verses 15 through 18. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, So they're essentially lying to Joseph. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So what these actions by the brothers show us is their own unbelief. They didn't believe, at least at this point, in God's sovereign plan for their own life, nor did they believe it in the life of their brother Joseph. After everything they've seen, they still struggle to believe that this is actually real. And so they doubt. They believe their dad, not God, was the one that was in control. That somehow Jacob was the one holding back Joseph's wrath against them. They didn't believe that God was actually working out his good purposes through their evil acts against their brother Joseph. Now, they understood something theologically here. They, they understood that their sin deserved death. They understood that much. But that is not what Joseph is going to do. Although he had really every right to do so. And this, and this reality, once they kind of recognize that Joseph is not going to take revenge on them and torture them in some you know, crazy way and eventually kill them, um, they don't understand this. This is outside their logic. And this is the way we often think, isn't it? We might say things like, there's no way God is going to use this seemingly impossible circumstance happening in my life right now for his good purposes. There is absolutely no way God could do that. There's no way God would ever use someone like me that has hurt so many people in my life that love me. There is no way that God would do that. Or there's no way God would ever really save me because of the ways in which I have sinned against him. And they are terrible. And the story of Joseph and his brothers is a perfect example to say, yes, there is a way. And that way is only found in Jesus Christ. In and of yourself, like Joseph's brothers, and remember, we are more like Joseph's brothers than we are like Joseph. So in and of yourselves, like the brothers, you deserve death for your sin. But Jesus, like Joseph, steps in, assumes your burden of sin on his back, and dies for your sins. All of the wrath of God that you deserve to be poured out on you because of your sin and your evil acts, Jesus takes on himself. And not only that, he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. What, what Jesus' death on the cross does is bring, it brings you peace between you and God. And that is a massive truth to understand. So what do we deserve, the brothers ask? The answer is death. We all deserve death. And yet Joseph shows them the opposite. He gives them life. Look at verses 19 through 21. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So what, if, what is Joseph saying here? Well, he's reminding them of God's sovereign purposes. It's something that he's already said back in chapter 45, if you remember. Uh, he said, God sent me before you to preserve life. Speaking to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. So notice as well in verse 20, Joseph doesn't let them off the hook for what they've done. He doesn't turn around and do uh, even something more crazy and call their sin good. He never does that. He never says, oh, what you did, because God used it for good, what you did was good. Joseph does not give that sort of affirmation because it wouldn't be true for him to say that. He acknowledges the truth of their actions. You meant it for evil against me. Joseph understood that about them. You meant it for evil against me. So Joseph's statement here is a classical theological statement because he's declaring that within the sovereign plan of God, within the sovereign plan of God, designed to save many people alive, in some way incorporated the evil of the brothers. And he used it as the means of bringing about the ultimate good. Because God's purposes stand over and above even the most wicked of sins. And that was true in Joseph's life, but it's also true in your life, in my life, and in this world. There is nothing that happens that is outside of God's sovereign purposes. Nothing. And I know that might be hard for some of you to hear. I know that. And I, and I just, to be honest with you, I don't, have, I don't know all the ins and outs of God's sovereignty, nor does anybody else in the world, just so you know. But we do know one thing is true, and that God is good, and that he loves his people. So you may have suffered greatly. Maybe you can relate to Joseph more than the person next to you. But because of what Christ has done in his person and in his work, you can say with Joseph, to whatever situation it is, or to whatever person it is that may, has, may have done you harm, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And believe it or not, because of what Christ has done, believers can use their situation, however dark it may be, to demonstrate God's sovereign purposes even through human failure. And this typically looks like forgiveness and kindness. For that is the only response that makes sense because that is what Christ has done for us. He has forgiven us and he constantly shows us kindness that we don't deserve. And it's at least what Joseph does for his brothers in verse 21. 
when he says to them, he makes this declarative statement that had to just uh, level his brothers in every way. When he says, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. So what, what, what Joseph is saying is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and continue to keep you safe. You're going to remain in the land. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not even going to torture you. I'm not even going to make life uh, harder than the next person's life just to kind of get at you a little bit. I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to provide for your children, and I'm going to provide for your grandchildren. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So that's the second way. The third way we are able to see God's sovereign purposes is through the reminder of God's future grace. What hasn't happened yet. So verse 24, Joseph is now dying. And he takes the moments just before his death to remind his sons and his grandchildren at this point, and his brothers who are still alive at this point. He says these words to to them. I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And those are some of his final words. He gives, some, he gives some burial information about his bones and make sure when you do leave to take my bones with you and things like that. But these are his, really his final lasting words to those who are, who are gathered around him. Now, by this point in Genesis, at the very end, you may be wondering about this land that everyone keeps talking about and why it's so important that it would be the last words of Jacob and Joseph. So I want to take the next few moments to give us a kind of a biblical theology of the promised land and how this land is a reminder of God's future grace. So the way we know that Joseph is pointing uh, into the future, to God's future grace, is seen in one word in verse 24, and that is the word, at least in the ESV, that is the word visit. The word visit. So the word visit here signifies, this is a theological definition, a short one, but theological definition, divine intervention for the sake of blessing or cursing. So this means that, that God will visit his people for either blessing them or cursing them. That's what that word visit means. Which in the short term, as shall be read for us in Hebrews, we see this visitation and deliverance fulfilled in the exodus of God's people from Egypt in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. But in the long term, we see this visitation and deliverance fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Joseph's words here were not only pointing to the short term, but they were also pointing way into the future for God's people. Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, verses 68 through 69. This is uh, Zechariah speaking, who is John the Baptist's uh, father. And he says these words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of of his servant David. So Zechariah there is pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the Messiah. And the way he's doing that is pointing everyone back. He's reminding everyone of what was promised to God's people. That the Messiah was coming. 
But all of this in Genesis is framed in the promise of the land. And the land that God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15 is not simply a nice geographical location, nor is it prime real estate that, had, that was a good investment for God's people. They're going to be able to make a profit on this one day. That is not what was happening here. The land actually acts as a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Which is important because as God's people, we don't always stay on course in our divine calling that God has called us to. And this, so the land is sort of God's way, as, I, as, I, as Martin Luther said last week in his quote, this is God's way of beating his covenant faithfulness into our heads. Or better yet, into our hearts. He is rooting this promise deep within his people. Now, the giving of the land doesn't actually start with Abraham in Genesis 15. It actually starts back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you remember, God creates a beautiful garden paradise. Everything that he creates is good. And then he makes humans who are very good, and then he gives them this beautiful land, this beautiful garden. As one author pointed out that the description of the garden in Genesis 1 and 2 wasn't an agricultural description, necessarily, but rather a theological one. You see, the land was ultimately a place where God could dwell with humanity. So, so their relationship with God from the very beginning was linked to the land that God gave to them. But as we know, Genesis 3 comes along, and because of sin, they lose this land. They lose this, this garden, this promised land. And then Genesis chapter 4 all the way into Genesis chapter 11 sort of traces the downward spiral of humanity living outside the land God has provided for them, away from God's presence, and this culminates in the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And we know that doesn't go well. And God scatters the people across the earth, and then we arrive in Genesis chapter 12, and God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So what does that say? Well, first it says this. It says that the world's perception of God is wrong. The world says that God, especially the Old Testament God, is a God bent on wrath toward humanity. That all he wants to do is seek and destroy. But that is a wrong perception of who God is. Based on him giving the land to his people, he is one that is beholden to a relationship with his people. He wants to be with us. And that is communicated through the promise of the land over and over again. Essentially, what God could actually say over and over again is, instead of saying, I promise you this land, he could say, I want to be with you. 
I long to be with you. I long to dwell with you. I long to be back to how it was in the garden. To walk with you in the cool of the day. And this is the promise that remains with us throughout the rest of Genesis. Even to chapter 50. But we know, if you've read your Old Testament, that God's people do not remain faithful to God despite His sure promises of the land. Despite His desire to be with His people, they rebel against Him. They walk away from Him. They do what is right in their own eyes. They worship idols. They sin greatly. And eventually, this leads God to take away the land, putting his people into exile. And this was simply not God trying to be mean to his people, but this was consequences, again, of not living in right relationship with God. But God, being a God of grace and mercy, continues and not only brings them out of exile, he also opens up his promises to those outside of Judaism. These are people known as the Gentiles. Most of us, probably all of us in this room would be in that category. So now, salvation is no longer tied to this land, nor is it tied to a specific people group either. And this is made known in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 47 Verses 21 through 23. And the prophet Ezekiel says, So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. So still recognizing God's people in that way. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. So what this means, hundreds of years before Jesus comes to earth, what this means is that when God ultimately gathers his people, they are going to be from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. So every nation will be represented, every tribe will be represented, and every language will be represented. And that is only made possible by what we see hundreds of years after Ezekiel's prophecy in the New Testament era of history. Because in this era, the long descendant of Abraham and David from the line of Judah, the promised snake crusher from Genesis 3.15, the Messiah arrives. Jesus Christ. And through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus lives the life Adam and Eve could not, and he lives the life the nation of Israel never could. And through his life, as one author says, he creates little pockets of the promised land where everyone can experience the life, love, and rule of God on earth. And then on the cross, Jesus identifies with our experience of exile. He he identifies with, with us by being separated from God in his suffering and in his death. He takes on the curse 
for us. And that curse is separation. So Jesus puts himself into exile on our behalf. And then through the resurrection, he brings humanity back into the promised land. And now those who follow Jesus through repentance and faith are brought into God's presence once again to walk again with him. And so what you see throughout the entirety of Genesis, just to focus it on Genesis because that's where we've been, the entire time God has been drawing us back, not pushing us away, not trying to find things that we were doing wrong so he could curse us and drop his wrath down upon us. No, he was drawing us back to himself, drawing us back to the garden. And Jesus, the new Adam, leads us back to the new Eden, the new garden, the promised land. And because we now have this relationship with God in Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, we now are called to go to the ends of the earth, creating little pockets of the promised land as we live life together as God's covenant community known as the church. And we do this until Jesus fulfills his promise to return again. And we know he will. Because he promised it himself. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus, Jesus says these words to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And today, because of that truth, God's people still die in hope. As Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Leah, Jacob, Joseph, and so many others did. Because God has promised them a new heavens and a new earth where death shall be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, because we will see Jesus face to face and walk in unbroken intimacy with him. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, you are truly a good father to your people. That even in the reality of Genesis uh, the, whole, the entire book of Genesis and even the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is a story about Jesus and it's a story of you seeking to bring your people back to yourself uh, through Jesus. So God, I pray that we would recognize your great love for us in Christ and that would change us. Even if we've been walking with Jesus for um, 20, 30, 40 years or even if we never have, that you would change us by the gospel. And we pray all of these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen.